welcome to the Redeemer Central podcast. Redeemer Central is a church community in Belfast seeking to practice the way of Jesus and work for the peace and good of our city. For more information, please visit RedeemerCentral.com. Hey everyone, after a short break, we're back into our series, Practicing the Way. Um, This is a series uh, that is helping us as a community explore nine ancient practices that root us in the way of Jesus and deepen our experience of God as we serve our world. And we began this back in October and we began looking at the practice of Sabbath. Then most recently in January, looking at the practice of prayer. And so we're now on practice number three and we're beginning uh, this week to look at the practice of fasting, which is a really interesting one. And it is relevant. It's the church calendar. And we've just entered into the season of Lent. I don't know how many people have just experienced or celebrated or marked Shrove Tuesday. Uh, last week I know in our house we made some pancakes for breakfast and everyone was very happy at that. Um, maybe it's m- maybe fair to say that most of us are, are more comfortable talking about feasting than, than fasting. I don't know, maybe that's not true. And we're going to explore some more of those themes throughout, the next, throughout this series in the next four weeks. Um, to take kind of a broad approach just to open us up uh, today, um, we're called to be disciples of Jesus, to be apprentices of Jesus, to be followers of Jesus. And what that really means in simple terms is to organize our lives around three basic goals. Number one, to be with Jesus. Number two, to become like Jesus. And number three, to live as he did. And so to to follow Jesus, to, to follow the way of Jesus means to adopt his overall lifestyle. It means to arrange our lives around the practices and the way that he himself did. And the reason for that is that we might open ourselves up to the whole life of God to transform us uh, from the inside out. When we look at the life of, of Jesus, we see him as someone who feasted. It was said that Jesus, he came eating and drinking and he left us, of course, with a meal, with the sacred Eucharist, the bread and the wine and a table to remember him by. But when you look at the scriptures, Jesus also fasted. He began his, his ministry uh, with 40 days of fasting in the wilderness when the, the evil one, uh, the devil, uh, tempted him to eat, uh, saying, man shall not live in, or when Jesus responded, man shall not live in bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so all the gospels, all the biographies of Jesus, we read of him fasting. And yet today, most Christians perhaps feast, but very few fast. I wonder what it would Uh, be like if we conducted a bit of a survey among ourselves as to who might fast uh, regularly. I know it's not a common practice and yet if fasting is not a practice and yet you call yourself a disciple of Jesus you're not alone because basically fasting has has disappeared it seems from modern Christian spirituality in the West, not in the world, but particularly in the West. Today, you're more likely to, to read about or hear about fasting from a fitness guru or a wellness expert or a, or a Muslim, in fact, than from a Christian. And that's not to mention the fact that many Western people have, have got an unhealthy relationship to food and even to their own body. Um, perhaps just the idea of fasting is a trigger for many of maybe body shame or ongoing struggles with eating disorders. I know that it is common in, 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 
pastoral ministry, um, it's, a, it's a common struggle. I know that even in my own life, that's been a struggle. My relationship with food is quite connected to my to a, a bowel condition that I have called Crohn's disease. And so sometimes a relationship with food can be complicated um, because it has such an impact on our lives, on our mood, on our mental health, and, and perhaps even on our, our body image, um, body shame, leading to all kinds of maybe eating disorders, and mental health issues. So I want to kind of acknowledge that before we begin talking about fasting, that that, that, that to be aware of, to, to, to raise awareness of that, to acknowledge that. Uh, many of us just don't want anything to do with fasting. And yet it seems like perhaps we're missing out on something, maybe one of the most important practices of Jesus. Um, when we look at our Bibles, I would love you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. And we see in Matthew 6, we read this excerpt from the Sermon on the Mount, which is a collection of the most important teachings of Jesus. In Matthew 6, verse 16, he says this, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So if you notice two things, Jesus assumes that his disciples will fast, um, because in verse 16 he says, when you fast, he doesn't mention if you fast, he, he talks about when you fast. And then when he, he says, when you fast, your father will reward you, meaning there's some kind of gift waiting for us on the other side of fasting. Now, what I'm not talking about there is some kind of prosperity gospel or word of faith kind of belief, which maybe many Christians ascribe to, where if you just obey God, then you will be given all the blessings that you want you'll have the best life. That is not what I see as the Christian life or as typical of the Christian life at all. But what we see, and it's certainly not what we teach in Redeemer at all, but what we do see here is there's some kind of reward, some kind of benefit, some kind of connection or gift on the other side of fasting um, when we look at those verses from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, here's the thing. Um, most followers of Jesus in the West don't fast, but we, we used to. Um, and so I wanted us to look at a, a brief history of, of fasting. Fasting is uh, it's a part of every major religion in the world, including Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. And a, a lot, if not most, indigenous spiritual practices will, will include fasting. Um, the first mention of fasting in all human history as a spiritual discipline is actually in the book of Exodus. We read about Moses' 40-day fast on Mount Sinai, followed by the command that the whole of Israel should fast on the Day of Atonement or of Yom Kippur. Um, you read throughout the whole Old Testament, you'll see story upon story of fasting and all the major characters fasting, whether that's Moses or David, Samuel, Esther, the prophets. By the time you get to Jesus, it's common practice for the Jewish people to actually fast twice a week until sundown. And early Christians continued that practice. They continued the practice two days a week in uh, some of the first Christian writings outside the New Testament. Um, one called the Didache. Uh, fasting was commanded on a Wednesday and a Friday. So two full days um, before baptism. And then the church fathers teach on, on fasting 
first early Christians took fasting really seriously. One book from 380 AD called The Constitutions of the Holy Apostles said this, if any one of the clergy be found to fast on the Lord's day or on the Sabbath day, excepting one day, let him be deprived. But if he be one of the laity, let him be suspended. Basically what that meant um, is that fasting was so widespread that they had to regulate it. They had to tell the people no fasting on Saturdays or Sundays. And that particular quote, um, it, it made one exception. It said only the, the, the one only day, it said, um, which is actually referring to one exception to that rule, which was on uh, Holy Saturday. So the Sabbath on Holy Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, the entire church would fast for 40 hours between Jesus' death and resurrection. That was to connect, to get in touch with Christ and his sufferings. Um, that was the only exception. Otherwise, no Saturdays or Sundays um, should you be um, fasting at all. So it just shows that fasting was really prevalent and it needed to be regulated. Um, then you've got Lent. Lent, the six weeks leading up to Easter, was originally a fast where followers of Jesus would not eat until sundown each day. Um, so the practice of Ramadan that, that Muslims observe would largely be based on the Christian practice of Lent, where today most um, church traditions um, have actually changed Lent to be more of a practice of abstinence, you know, where you give something up. Um, maybe it's TV or social media or wine or whatever it might be, fast food, um, sugar, chocolate. Um, but originally it was a full fast from food every day um, until sundown. So I suppose the point here is this, that early on in the history of the church, um, there were both regular one-day fasts, like every Wednesday or every Friday, and then there were these periodic longer fasts, like Lent. Um, and this lasted for well over 1,500 years before it seems to have really died out. In the 18th century, uh, John Wesley lamented. Um, he said this, I fear there are now thousands of, of Methodists, so-called, both in England and Ireland, who, following the same bad example, have entirely left off fasting, who are so far from fasting twice a week that they do not even fast twice in the month. So there you go. You know who you are. Um, John Wesley fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays just like those early Christians and even refused to ordain a pastor to ministry who didn't do the same. So really interesting. I'm not saying that I agree with that or that we should agree with that. Um, but I'm saying that followers of Jesus used to fast a lot and it was considered as central to the way of Jesus as, as reading the scriptures or going to church. Um, and it still is a large, in, in, in the large part around the world, outside of the West, f fasting is vigorously practiced in the Eastern streams of the church. If you went to like Eastern Orthodox or Coptic Christians in Egypt or the Dalits in, in India or in Iran or even especially in Africa, where their entire churches will often fast um, to begin the new year, for example, um, it's a practice you actually continue to see in many African-American churches or African churches in the UK or immigrant churches here in the UK or Ireland. Um, it's one of the few examples of fasting in the West. I suppose here's the point, which is that fasting is one of the most essential and powerful of all the practices of Jesus. And arguably it is the single most neglected in the modern 
Western Church. So you continue to see perhaps as well this history among the saints that testify to the power of fasting. If you listen to maybe one example from St. Basil the Great from 330 AD, uh, fasting gives birth to prophets. She strengthens the powerful. Fasting makes lawgivers wise. She is a safeguard for the soul, a steadfast companion for the body, a weapon for the brave, and a a discipline for, for champions. Fasting repels temptations, anoints for godliness. She is a companion for sobriety, the crafter of a sound mind. In wars, she fights bravely. In peace, she teaches tranquility. And the life of Jesus, the writings of the scriptures, the voice of the global church, and the teachings of the saints throughout church history all say the same thing, that fasting is essential and that it's powerful. So that, I guess, begs the question today, what is fasting? Let's cover um, the basics of, of fasting. I suppose, first off, um, we're going to ask, when we ask the question, what is fasting exactly? It's best, perhaps, to talk about what it's actually not. So it's not abstinence. Um, there is a differentiation there. I suppose you might hear people regularly saying that they're fasting from shopping or from social media or chocolate, a bit like we do during Lent. All really great things to do, but actually it's not fasting. That's more abstinence, and I think there is a difference there. Abstinence is a really good thing. This is not a, a, a being critical of it at all. It's actually got a very long and rich history in the church. It's just not fasting. It's it's abstinence. It's it's, it's a slightly different thing. So it's just, um, I think, wise to make that differentiation. It's Fasting is also not a restricted diet. You, know, you hear people talking about the Daniel fast or maybe a vegan diet or something like that. When you look at the Daniel story in the scriptures, the word fast is never used. It's not It's not a fast either. It's a restricted diet, which again is absolutely fine. It's, in fact, it's great. It has a long, rich history in the church as well, but it's, it's ju- it is a restricted diet. It's, it's, it's abstinence, but it's not fasting. Fasting is, at its most basic, not eating food. Um, in a normal fast, you would continue to drink water, um, but there are a few examples in scripture of a fast from both uh, food and water. So that's, um, I suppose, a brief explanation of what fasting is not. How long is a fast? There's no set time. Um, the most common fast is from, from waking up until sundown. Um, but there are examples in the scriptures of two-day fasts, three-day, seven-day, 21-day, 41-day fasts, or 40-day fasts, sorry. Um, quite Another question might be when do you fast? Again, fasting is not a command. Um, it's up to us. Um, it's a practice, um, but it's never commanded. In, in both uh, scripture and in church history, we do see these two different types of fasting. So you see fasting as a rhythm, like a regular rhythm, and then you see fasting as a response. Um, fasting as a rhythm would be fasting twice a week, like we've just talked about, or fasting on Fridays in the Catholic tradition. Um, the only example in the scriptures of like a fasting as a rhythm would be where Israel is commanded to fast on Yom Kippur. That would be the like an example of a, a rhythm of fasting. Um, and then you've got fasting as response, um, which is most of the examples in scripture are actually this, um, which would be a response to some kind of crisis, some kind of national crisis, some kind of invasion, 
some kind of sin, some kind of grief or loss, and the nation of Israel um, enters a fast. You look at that in 1 Samuel 31, King Saul dies, that the entire nation fasts for seven days. In Jonah 3, uh, when Nineveh is warned of their coming destruction, the king calls for a citywide fast and they're spared. In Esther 4, when the Hebrew people are threatened with genocide, Queen Esther calls for a three-day fast and the people are saved. So it's a point, the point here is that fasting is both this rhythm and it's also this res- a response. It's with a rhythm and a response. Uh, another question you might ask is, do we fast alone or should we fast in community? And the answer is actually both. There's a lot of people that misread Jesus' warning in Matthew 6 about fasting. Um, he's not saying that fasting in community is wrong, but that fasting is, as virtue signaling is wrong. So scripture is full of examples of the people of God fasting together. In fact, the whole, in the Old Testament, fasts were commanded for the entire community and would involve children and even animals. I suppose finally, some of those practical questions are really interesting and good to know, but finally, I suppose the most important question of all to ask, I think might be, uh, why do we fast? Um, and I kind of want to offer the, 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 the response to that as we fast to offer ourselves to Jesus. In fact, there are all sorts of reasons that we fast. Um, and actually, we're going to group these into four basic categories over the next four weeks. Um, Stephanie and myself and John Heron are going to um, kind of open up four different reasons that we fast. Um, number one would be to offer ourselves to Jesus. Number two would be to grow in holiness. Number three would be to, to amplify our prayers. And number four, to stand in solidarity with the poor. Um, so over the course of this practice, we want to talk about all four reasons. But as this is week one, um, it's the heart of it and the most central reason of all, which I want to cover now, which is the to offer ourselves to Jesus. The reason why we fast is to offer ourselves to Jesus. As I said, the early Christians continued the Jewish practice of fasting twice a week until sundown. Um, but what I did not say was that they changed the days. They actually changed the days from a Monday and a Thursday uh, to a Wednesday and a Friday. The reason they did that is because Wednesday was the day in the Passion Week that Christ was betrayed. And Friday was the day in which Christ was crucified. And so those days tether themselves to the Christ story, to the Passion Week, very meaningfully. And so early Christians were at a kind of primal bodily level trying to connect with Christ, trying to connect with what Dan has been talking about, the sufferings of Christ. And so remembering Christ in his sufferings, participating in the sufferings of Christ. When they fasted on a Wednesday, they would be remembering Christ's betrayal. When they fasted on a Friday, they'd be remembering Christ's crucifixion. They were intentionally adopting this pattern laid down by Jesus of dying and rising, death followed by life. In God, not out of hate for the body or pleasure, but out of a burning desire for Jesus. The reason why they were doing this was a desire for Jesus, not to hate themselves or their bodies or to deny pleasure. It was simply that connection with Christ, that there was something about this practice that helped that connection. And this is the ultimate reason for fasting, hunger for, for Jesus and for his transformation. Let me just pause there for a moment. I think many of us, 
perhaps in this community and in this room, are a little bit kind of weary and tired of, of religion or of sometimes even churchianity and all of that. And I think ultimately what really sits at the foundation of our faith, like we were singing about this morning, the, the house is built on a foundation, is that we just we want to see and experience the life of Jesus. We really like Jesus. We look at Jesus' way of life and we go, yes, I can give my yes to that. And it, it's, it's so, I guess, encouraging. It's so uh, affirming of our faith in the midst of what life is like. We look and fix our eyes on Christ. We build our life on that foundation. And it's, it's a hunger for transformation. It's a hunger for, for Christ to be indwelt in us, for us to become like him. We want to look like Jesus. I think I could speak for many of us in this room where we, we sometimes don't know what we think about other Christians or the church or the world, but we kind of like Jesus really quite a lot. And we really believe that he is about something and we want to follow him. In fact, we hunger for his kingdom to come. We hunger for his justice to show up. We hunger for his compassion to enter into those situations. We hunger for his presence when there is no presence. We hunger for his light to shine in the darkest parts of our lives, in the darkest parts of our workplaces or our families or our relationships. We hunger for that Jesus and his kingdom to show up. And it's that kind of hunger, that desire that sits right at the heart of fasting. Fasting is a response to that hunger to say, yes, Lord, I want to see more of you in my life, but also in the life of my community, in the life of my family, in the life of my peers. Whole body hungering for God is another way you could call fasting, or Scott McKnight calls it body talk. A way of praying with your body. God, I hunger for you I want you. I need you. Now, we might not feel hunger, hungry for God. If we're honest, we might today feel rather apathetic. We might feel like that today. All the more reason to fast. All the more reason to fast. One of the things I've, I've realized as we've been going through these practices, we started with Sabbath, and then last month we did prayer. This is our third practice, fasting. One of, the, one of the things I've realized is that these practices are actually there to kind of help us. They're kind of like an exoskeleton. They kind of hold us up. They're not something we do when we, when we just feel like it. I, I love to do things when I feel like doing them. But actually, the practices are something that when we set our mind to something, we go, yeah, I'm going to do this because I believe, I trust that in giving myself to this practice and giving myself to any of these practices, it's going to nourish my life. It's going to anchor my life. It's going to bring peace into my life. It's going to help me follow Jesus in this world. So we might not feel hunger. We might actually feel rather apathetic, but all the more reason to fast because fasting historically has an ability to awaken latent hunger. It can spark something in us. It can spark something within our very souls. Fasting is a practice that helps us offer our whole life over to God. I want you to think about Paul's line in Romans chapter 12. I think it'll come up on the screen. Many of you will maybe know this piece of scripture. 
the Apostle Paul, St. Paul, says this, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And note Paul's word choice. Offer your bodies, not just your heart, but your body. The Greek word there is the word soma. In fact, it'll come up on the screen. Soma, your whole person, including your body. That's where we get the word somatic, if you've kind of come across that word before. It means your whole person, including your body. In fact, I really think this is really relevant to us because I don't know about you, but I think we've got tired of segregating or compartmentalizing our spirituality. We want it to be integrated. And this is what fasting actually does because it tethers us to, it draws in and integrates our, our body. We give our bodies, not just our hearts or our minds, which we're excellent at in the West, but actually our whole bodies over to Jesus, to a practice that includes our bodies, involves our bodies. Part of the reason we emphasized the heart over the whole person in the church is because in the Western church overall, we've lost what Pope John Paul II called a theology of the body, which put simply is the truth that all scripture, that you don't have a body, but you are a body. You're a, you're a body. <laughs> or to be more precise, your body is a part of who you are. I grew up in a church tradition where much was said about giving my heart to Jesus or even my mind to Jesus and that is beautiful and we want to do that but there's something about this practice that helps us connect with our bodies Jesus came this is Christian theology 101 this is the foundation of what it means to be fully human as a Christian we believe Jesus came in a body or there's a doctrine called incarnation to save all of our body to save all of us and so there's a doctrine called the resurrection that's the saving of all of us. Jesus has not come to just save our souls and whisk us away to some kind of ethereal place where there's like just souls floating around. Jesus is, is going to save our bodies, this earth, every atom, every molecule. Like I like to say, matter matters. Like matter matters. Like our spiritual life, our Christian life is not that this is going to burn and we're just our souls, but this all matters. Cities matter. Streets matter. Places matter. Your body matters. This is Christian theology 101. And we draw this from what we see in the scriptures revealed in Christ. He came in a body, embodied the divine life embodied in this world. And one day at the end, and it's a mystery, and I don't know how to explain it. I don't want to get into eschatology at all, but one day our Christian hope is that Christ, who's in the business of remaking all things new, the renewal of all things, everything that is tainted and distorted and fainted, uh, faint and tainted and all of that, disfigured, broken, is going to be made new again. It's going to be made like it was meant to be. And in that day, that means everything, including our bodies, will be raised from death to life. All I'm doing here is preaching basic Christian theology 101, and I think it's absolutely riveting stuff. <laughs> it's basic, but it is riveting. 
Because there's so much teaching in the church that would say we're just our minds or just let's just get let's just make sure we believe we have the right beliefs in the right order in our head and that's what makes us a Christian or perhaps we have to feel something and our souls are right. No, we all of us are involved in this life. All of us matters and Christ is here to redeem and to use all of us. And that's what Pope John Paul's the second's theology of the body, which is an unbelievable piece of work, if you want to go deeper on that, is all about that you don't have a body, that you are a body. In the meantime, our discipleship or our apprenticeship to Jesus must take seriously the body. The Apostle Paul famously said to the Corinthians, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Who is in you? The Spirit of God is alive. The breath of God, the pneuma of God is alive in each of you, animating you, guiding you, speaking to you. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Your body is a temple, a dwelling place for God. Do you realize how radical that is? It just kind of comes off our tongues in the modern day church. But if you were to kind of show up, you know, 5,000, 10,000 years ago and kind of were speaking to someone like Moses or David or, and you were to say, no, the temple, that altar, that, that tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, I am the dwelling place of God. I mean, it's just, it's radical. It's radical that the spirit of the living God, the divine life that holds the very cosmos together, the mystery, the energy, whatever you want to call that, as we call it God, the creator God, his spirit lives within us. He dwells in each of us, dwells in you. And therefore, what we do matters and what we do with our body matters. The body is the sphere where our discipleship to Jesus becomes real, where it's not just an idea or a feeling, but it's a practice in the way of life that Jesus calls us to. One way to think about discipleship is as a disciplined attempt to get the teachings of Jesus into our bodies, kind of under our skin, kind of into our neurobiology, into like our muscle memory. It's kind of one of the, I think, I think it's one of the outcomes of perhaps giving ourselves to a practice like fasting. It kind of helps develop some kind of bodily muscle memory. It's not involving our mind or our souls as much as it's involving our body. And so when we're confronted with certain, in, certain situations in life, we kind of have like a, like a, a reaction, like, a, like let's informed by that muscle memory. We kind of react in a Jesus way when we come into certain circumstances in life. It's kind of that's the kind of like the metaphor that, 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 that I think really is really helpful. Fasting is one of the best possible ways to get the teachings of Jesus kind of into your body, under your skin, so to speak. Romans 12, let's go back to Romans 12 for a moment. It says, we offer our whole persons, including our bodies to Jesus, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, which means we do this as a response to the mercy of God in our lives, in view of God's mercy to us, in view of the divine life showing up in my life, and helping and rescuing and pulling me up and shining light into my darkness and bringing healing and restoration in view of the merciful glance of the divine upon me. We'll give our bodies in worship. Give our body as a response of devotion. 
We'll give our bodies as an act of worship. That's kind of what Romans 12 is getting at. So we can fast for all kinds of reasons, and you can tune into, I don't know, Andrew Huberman or Joe Rogan or whoever it is, I don't know, who talks about intermittent fasting. For all those kind of reasons, fair enough, do that. But I think one of the reasons why fasting is a spiritual practice, and it's part of our tradition in the Christian tradition, is because of this. It's not to get something from Jesus, but it's to give ourselves to Jesus. It's to say, Jesus, you're worthy. You're worthy of my life. You're worthy of it all. Every song that I will sing, every breath that I will breathe, like we were singing earlier, fasting is saying, yeah, you're worthy. You're worthy. It's what Paul calls worship. We might call it devotion, affection, our love for Jesus. So to end this teaching, Jesus assumed that his disciples would fast. He never commanded fasting. It's not something that should weigh us down. It's not commanded upon us. We're doing like a quick survey this morning of what fasting is, not to make us feel guilty or bad or give us yet another thing to do, but simply so that we can be informed, that we can be taught what it is, so that we can access it, that we can enter into it, that we can use it if we feel like we want to do that, if we're called to do it, if we're moved to do it. The apostles never commanded it either, but they all did follow fasting as part of a rhythm. You can see it in the scripture like we've already talked about. So none of us have to fast, it's not required, but Jesus did fast, and the apostles and disciples fasted. And after Jesus fasted, the first thing he did was go to his disciples and say, come, follow me. He fasted for 40 days, and out of that fast, he went to his disciples and called them into this life, following him. So practices like fasting or prayer, Sabbath, they're really practices that help us follow Jesus faithfully, how we open up our whole person to his grace to be transformed, to be more like him. I don't know if anyone here has ever done fasting before in this way. I remember one of my uh, memories that come to me is, is visiting the little monastery in, in Ross Trevor with the Benedictine monks. And uh, they actually would feed you when you go there. They're beautiful people committed their lives to prayer. I remember engaging in a fast when I went there, which meant letting Brother Thierry know that I wouldn't be showing up to the silent mealtimes. I know Eleanor's smiling because I think you've been there, haven't you? A few of us have been down. Um, and I just remember it being so difficult. It's a difficult practice, but there's something strangely otherworldly about it. There's something nourishing about it. There's something valuable about it. To, to concentrate one's time and, and, and focus and even body upon something like this for a short period of time, it really can be that spark in, in, in your spiritual life. The, way, the, the church over the centuries has continued to echo that fasting is one of the most powerful disciplines for the spiritual life. There's something of a reward on the other side of it. There's something valuable to it. And ultimately, I believe that reward is Jesus himself. I believe that the reward on the other side of giving yourself to a practice like this is 
Christ himself, is an encounter with Christ himself, whether it's entering into his sufferings or whether it's just meeting Christ in an encounter, I really do believe that we can, we can meet Christ when we give ourselves to a practice like this. So if you want to offer your body and all that you are to Jesus in love, then the invitation is to practice fasting. I'm going to pick it up next week. We're going to continue looking at how fasting helps us grow in holiness. And then John and Stephanie are going to help us uh, look at how fasting helps us with both prayer and with both standing in solidarity with the poor. But for this morning, I'd love to invite the band up, Rosie and, and Lucas, who led us so well earlier. This morning, I'd love us to just kind of focus in on this one kind of emerging theme this morning, which is about surrender, about giving ourselves yet again to Jesus, offering ourselves again to Jesus, soul focus, giving our affections to Jesus, pouring out devotion on Jesus. And ironically, we're going to do that around a meal because it's a meal that we do every week, the table behind me. Um, we're going to take the bread and the wine. We practice an open table in Redeemer, which means that there's no one can stop you from coming to this table. We don't police the table. It's not even our table. It's not our meal. It is his meal. He set this meal up. And everyone who's, who wants to meet Jesus today is willing to come to this table. And it's a way that we practice our unity and our diversity when we come around Christ's table and declare him as Lord. And so ironically, we're going to think about devotion and giving ourselves to Christ today and entering into his sufferings in that way by actually taking into our bodies the body of Christ through the bread, the blood of Christ through the juice here that's provided. Um, and we're going to like focus on Christ. I'd love to invite you just to think about all that Jesus has done for us in view of his mercy, in view of what he calls you to, in view of this life that he invites you into. Think about Christ and his love for you and let's come and meet Jesus at the table. Let's stand and I'm going to lead us in prayer. Yeah, Father God, I just thank you this morning for your presence in our midst. Thank you that you're not a God who's absent. And Lord, I thank you that you're not a God who's disembodied either. But you're the God who showed up in flesh and in blood and in the grit of life, in the mess of life, in the reality of life. That Christ, you walked this earth pointing to your Father, pointing to the divine life that is all around us, if only we have eyes to see, and the invitation to step into that life. As strange as these practices may be, Lord, we just pray that the wisdom of these ancient practices and the example of the saints before us would beckon us, would invite us, would call us to a way of life that, although it feels bridled in some way, is actually a life of freedom. A life that invites us, that beckons us to give ourselves fully 
and trust ourselves fully with the God of creation revealed in Christ. So we pray this morning in our apathy, in our weakness, that you may fill us up that as we take the bread and the wine, the juice, that we may have an encounter afresh this morning with you and that by your spirit you'd help us as we walk into the week ahead of us to perhaps think about and take on board some of the invitation we've been talking about this morning to pour ourselves out for you, to give ourselves fully to you, to trust you, even to trust you with our own apathy, even to trust you with our own lives. Lord, would you come and meet us, we pray. We thank you, Christ, for your example. We thank you for your death. We thank you for your mercy and your grace upon us who so frequently wander and fail. We thank you that you love us unconditionally. And we pray this morning that we would taste grace as we come to this table. And Lord, that you by your spirit would help us to respond appropriately in worship. We pray this in the beautiful, in the sweet, in the able, in the strong name of Jesus. And everyone say it. Amen. Please do come forward. Don't hesitate, but come forward to this beautiful table, this table of grace. Take the bread, it's gluten-free, and the juice. And let's celebrate Christ today and his life, his death, and his resurrection for us. Amen.